This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Drive Nation podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. News broke last week that Honda will be pulling out of Formula One as an engine supplier at the end of the 2021 season. Um, it, it kind of came as a bit of a surprise. We're not going to dwell on it too much because plenty has been said and written about it already. Um, but instead, we're going to use this as an opportunity to talk about Honda as a company, Andrew, because, well, it, actually, it's a fascinating company and they're all total petrol heads, aren't they? Oh, complete, yeah. And I think that this is a point which uh, hopefully will come across. I mean, Honda... I mean, really, I mean, they're as big a bunch of car enthusiasts uh, and particularly engineering enthusiasts as you'll ever find in, you know, in Stuttgart or Maranello. Um, and, yeah, I think I think that's what, what I kind of hope to sort of bring out a bit over um, over the next hour that um, they just love it. And, it. and I just think it's a terrible shame that, you know, Formula One, which is, you know, not been having a great time of it of late, has had, has had yet another kick in the nuts. But, you know, I think it is probably... You know, as it has been with so many things, um, an architect of its own downfall. But um, as you say, we're not going to dwell too much on that. But I think we should just um, pick it over briefly before we get into the sort of um, the more meaty stuff um, and Honda's history, both in uh, in road cars and, and in racing. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's so much fascinating ground to cover. Um, there are supercars and there's weird, quirky engineering. There's motorsport success and failure as well, to be honest, on two wheels and on four um there are business jets and robots there's, i mean there's all sorts that we can get stuck into but let's just cover cover off the the formula one announcement now um so the company came back to f1 as a hon as a uh, an engine supplier um in 2015 with mclaren um and i suspect nobody's going to look back on that time especially fondly are they we probably all remember the fernando alonso gp2 engine remark um, yeah absolutely yeah the, I mean, lean, I, the lean years they were i mean i can remember talking to um the chap 
who was, I must have spoken to him in 13 or 14, so after the announcement, but a long time before um, uh, they actually came back. Um, and him explained to me that, you know, the re- such was the way that the regs were written, they wouldn't actually be able to get and it, to run an engine in a car until the year in which it made its debut. Um, and, and just thinking to myself that this is such a mountain that you need to climb, and then thinking to myself, but actually, hang on a second, you know, if anybody can do it, um, you know, Honda can do it, because obviously they'd had a pretty disastrous time as their own constructor and as an engine supplier um, in the earlier part of the, the century. Um and they would have learnt that lesson, and they would presumably, as a pure engine supplier, are going to be looking back to their amazing time in the sport in the late 80s and early 90s. And I just thought that they would understand the size of the task they were taking on, but it, it, it just didn't work out, did it? I mean, I think there are all sorts of problems, particularly with you know them being in Japan uh, and Honda being, I'm sorry, McLaren being in Woking and um, it just being, I think there were cultural differences between the two companies and uh, it seems to me that they just, and it's, you know, it's surprising to say this about Honda, I think they just underestimated the size of the task involved and uh, yes, and, and we, we know what happened after that. Mm, okay, so for the last couple of years, um, engine supplier to Red Bull, also Alpha Tauri, the sort of Red Bull Junior team. And so far, five wins um, in this current uh, sort of era uh, as an engine supplier, five race victories, which is, you know, not to be sniffed at. There's another full season to come. Um, who knows if the Mercs trip over each other, perhaps there'll be a title in it. Although, Yeah, but, but, okay, but that's the point. You need an outside influence, do you? don't you? They're not, I'm afraid. I mean, they might occasionally, I mean, they did at Silverstone, didn't they? You know, um, but even that was, you know, clearly Merck was having tyre trouble. You know, what they're not going to do, what it's very hard to see them doing, unless there is some great technical development they find from somewhere, which with the regs being written the way they are, I think it's very unlikely. Um, they're not just going to, in a completely straight fight, on a completely even playing field, uh, he said, mixing his metaphors furiously, um, <laughs> just go out there and beat the Mercedes. Um, it's really, really hard, even with Max driving, um, to see how that's going to happen. I mean, I think it is worth pointing out, um, you know, or asking the question why they have been certainly more successful with Red Bull and Toro Rossa and Alpha Tauri than they were with McLaren. And I think that to be fair to Honda, I think an awful lot of the problems with uh, the McLaren Honda um, in the first three years, in 15, 16 and 17, were actually as much to do with McLaren as they were to do with uh, to do with Honda. And I think that it was quite easy for Honda, to, for, sorry, for McLaren to point the finger at Honda um, and their new engine um, and to say that's why the cars aren't great. But in fact... You know, you stick them in a Red Bull and they start doing things. Um, and I suspect it was other things. I suspect that culturally the two companies got on better than they did, than Honda did with McLaren and so on and so on. But, you know, the the lean early years certainly weren't just down to Honda producing um, an underperforming engine. A GP2 engine, yeah. Um, so, I mean, presumably there'll be more race wins to follow, perhaps this season, maybe next season. Um, but even so, you know, if they rack up, let's say, 10 race victories... It, and they'll be doing be, really they'll be doing really well yes, to do that exactly it, but it, it will not be what honda set out to achieve when yeah. it returned to formula one as an engine supplier so yeah, absolutely sadly it, it will have to be deemed a failure um which is a you know a very brutal way of putting it but qualified for here to do. yes in, in, in terms absolutely you're completely correct they would have thought to themselves what three years 
So you go in in 15, um, that's your learning year. You hope to be getting podiums in 16 um, and certainly winning races in 17 and you know, and maybe taking titles and certainly after that. Uh, that, I think, is the sort of trajectory that they would have been um, thinking about. And, and it just didn't happen. <laughs> you have to think about the timing, actually. And maybe in that you feel some sympathy for... Uh, for Honda, that so came in for 2015, just as Mercedes was really stamping its authority on Formula One. Absolutely, and prob- that's half the story, isn't it? Is Mercedes just being so imperious um, that no one else really gets much of a look in? No, um, but 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 that's off on the way, isn't it? You know, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, imagine being a you know a really really good you know music composer at the time that Mozart was around or a really really good writer when Shakespeare was around you know people don't you know remember the guys who were just really really good they 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 remember the best and you know and Mercedes have come along and just knocked it out of the park haven't they I wonder how the Drive Nation podcast will be remembered in decades to come <laughs> if at all <laughs> okay um well the, the, so the thing about Honda in Formula One is that it's yeah, this the, last week's announcement is just the latest instalment in a long and meandering and uh, well, you know, tale of Honda in Formula One. There have been highs and lows, yeah. Um, but it, it reaches all the way back to the sixties. It does. It does. Can you fill us? Can you fill us in? Yeah. Um, so Honda decided to. Um, you know, Honda was obviously already extremely well established on two wheels um, by the uh, early 1960s, and um, I, you know I think that they wanted to prove their credentials on four wheels too, as their road car business was um, was growing. And so um, they went into Formula One, uh, and they went into Formula One uh, in uh, the mid 60s, uh, back in the days of one and a half liter cars, and they produced a car which actually won a race um you know and th- this wasn't an engine plug this was their own car um you know 100 percent their own car and um was it the last race of 1965 certainly one of the last races of 1965 was the mexican grand prix which richie ginther won uh, in this honda um first win for honda first win to win for a honda powered car first win for goodyear um and you know, I think, think people probably thought that great things were going to come, and it didn't quite work out like that. Um, you know, they stayed in the sport. They had a three-liter engine, but the car wasn't very good. I mean, the engine was actually quite good. Um, you know, by 1967, so 1966 was kind of a bit of a learning year for the new three-liter formula. But by 1967, um, obviously the uh, the Ford Cosworth DFE turned up that season and kind of changed the face of racing. But also, you know, Dan Gurney had his V12 engine, Ferrari had its V12 engine, and Honda came along with his V12 engine. And from what I understand, Honda's V12 was absolutely as good as um, as the others. Um, it probably was the most powerful engine on the grid, but obviously that has to be offset by its weight. Um, and the DFE was not only a lot lighter in itself... Um, but it had more low down torque and you could uh, mount it as a stressed member so you didn't have to have a rear subframe so the car itself was lighter and on and on and on but as an engine in itself it was great um, and it finally proved it when they finally stuck it in a chassis uh, worthy of the mention uh, which was after a pretty difficult season um, they took a, a Lola I think it was an IndyCar chassis actually which Lola had made and adapted it and stuck this engine in the back of it um, and it went and won the Italian Grand Prix um, with um, the late John Surtees 
driving it. Um, and um, yeah, my the, the, <laughs> the sort of weapons grave trivia stat about that particular car is as anybody who has um, read the post I uh, did on Friday uh about uh honda leaving f1 was that it is the only f1 car ever to have won a race on the only lap of the only race it ever led so if you're going to lead one lap in your entire history as a racing car lead the race lead the last lap of the race that you win um and it did <laughs> and um and that car was known as the for obvious reasons the hondola i actually drove it um Goodness yeah, how, how did that come about then? Yonks ago, 20 years ago, 20 or more years ago. It came about because I was the editor of Motorsport at the time and Honda had a, in the UK, had a PR chief called Paul Ormond um, who was just really into all this stuff. And this was back in the days when you could just, you know, he would just ring up and he'd go, uh, and this came about because he rang up and he went, uh, I've just found out that they're bringing a load of stuff over to Goodwood and the Hondola is one of them. Would you like to drive it? And I thought to myself, well, that'll be fun. Um, I could just give it a quick, you know, sprint up the hill at Goodwood. Um, won't be able to make much of it because you can't photograph the thing um, uh, or anything else. But, um, you know, I could, you know, have a have a bit of a go. And he went, no, 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 no. Let's not do it at Goodwood. Let's do it in Japan because they've hired a massive racetrack and you can go and have a proper go in it. And that's the sort of thing that you could do back then. So uh, we wandered off over there Um and they showed me the car and they looked at me and they looked at the car and they said, well, you're not going to fit in that, uh, which was absolutely <laughs> correct. Uh, and I couldn't fit in it. Um, and where I was lucky was, I mean, the photographs look ridiculous, but you could take the top part of the bodywork, which is pretty much the windscreen surround and a bit of metalwork off. Um, the problem wasn't so much legroom, it's just I was just quite a lot wider, how can I put this delicately, <laughs> wider um, than um, your, your, your traditional sort of snake-hipped... Um, Mr. Surtees. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, but they took this surround away, and then I could drive the car. And, and, and I, you know, I knew, really, that they didn't want me in the car, because, you know, well, why would you? Why would you want this, you know, large English idiot driving your beautiful jewel of a racing car? Um, but you know, somebody up top had said that I needed to drive it, and they would be thinking, "Well, if he blows it up, that's the end of Goodwood and everything else." But anyway, I did, and we were at Tachigi, and I got in it, and I found myself surprisingly comfortable in the car and surprisingly confident in it. Um, and you know, nobody had said to me, "Oh, you can only do this many revs or that number of laps." So I just started driving it a bit faster. Um, and by the end of it, um, I was driving it certainly as fast as I was comfortable driving it. And I was kind of, I was using all the revs and having a great time. And I came in thinking, I hope I haven't overstepped the mark here. And all these mechanics who'd been pretty po-faced through most of the time I was there were just suddenly just grinning from ear to ear. They just thought it was fabulous because they, they saw the car care. I wasn't exactly 30s, but I was using it, you know, by my own, you know, limited standards. I was using it reasonably properly, um, and they just loved it. Um, and I just remember that angel. I don't really remember much about the car because I wasn't, you know, leaning on it particularly hard in the corners because you know you just wouldn't, would you? Um, but the engine was absolutely mega. I mean, the sound was incredible, um, massively powerful, and it also just it just felt strong. It just felt pretty unburstable. So, yeah, great memory of that. Um, and yeah, that was the last Honda to win a race until what was it jensen in hungary in 2006 yeah I, I remember that so vividly i was what was i probably 19 years old at that point and it uh, uh, trying to be a huge formula one fan but um you know the preceding years was all ferrari and schumacher dominance 
Um, and I tune in and I suppose it's similar to the way people feel about the Hamilton Mercedes dominance right now. You tune in and, oh, Schumacher's winning and you tune out again. And I, yeah. was, I was desperate to be a huge Jensen Button fan because he was British. Also, he came from Somerset, comes from Somerset and I'm a Bristol boy. So yeah. there's a West Country connection. Yeah. Um, and I and he, was also, that, he was also a really nice guy, wasn't he? he yeah, exactly. He was great. Yeah, great fun on TV. Um, in interviews and stuff and I just wanted him to win um, but then I think it was 04 maybe 05 as well do you remember the Honda My Earth Dream car yeah yeah <laughs> it yeah. was just miserable wasn't it um, and it, they were just nobbing around at the back of the field uh, and it made it very difficult to be a, a sort of devoted Jensen Button fan until and I watched it live Budapest 2006 changeable weather and he he got it absolutely right um, and won and I just I remember seeing his crazy manic eyes when he jumped out of the car and he still had his helmet on and it just, it clearly meant the world to him and the team and I, I just remember leaping about and just being delighted by it all I mean I think um and this is a bit of a sort of um sideline but um but just on the subject of Jensen um you know I, I hope he doesn't become one of those people who is regarded as being, having been quite fortunate in winning a world title insofar as in 2009 the moment they took the Honda engine out of the car and called it a brawn, and gave it a proper engine. The, you know, he went and he won, and they, they had the double defeat, didn't they, before anybody else, and blah, blah, blah. And I hope he did, people don't think, oh, well, you know, he was quite lucky to get that because he was in so far and away the best car. I mean, I think that race in Hung- what that race in Hungary proved was that in the most difficult conditions, uh, and anybody who has raced a car will tell you the most difficult conditions are not either when it's you know fully wet or fully dry, but when it's somewhere between the two, when it is absolutely your feel and your feel alone that's going to get you around a, a, a track quickly and safely. In those conditions, Jensen was, you know, he was as good as any I've ever seen. He was fantastic in those conditions when it was really, really marginal. There were times when he just looked like he was just in a different race to anybody else. And I think that race in Hungary was you know, a great example of that. And it wasn't the only one, was it? Yeah, that's true. Also with Jensen, um, it, the, the first part of his career, he, he didn't have a car capable of winning races, let, let alone championships. The moment he got a car capable of winning a championship, he won it. Um, his McLarens were very rarely championship cars. Well, perhaps never championship um, material. Uh, but he he won races nonetheless. So when I think when he's been given an opportunity in a competitive car, he's really taken it. Exactly. I think that's what you have to say about Jensen, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. And, and, you, and, and, you, and, and you can't ask for more, can you? Yeah. Yeah. Quite. Um, okay. So <clears throat> one of the reasons then that people were so excited about Honda and McLaren teaming up again for the 2015 season was that it it called to mind that amazing era. Um, They'd been there before. Around the late 80s. Yeah. Exactly. And their enormous success, um, n- not least the, the, the stunning 1988 season where McLaren Honda won all but one uh, Grand Prix. So what do you remember of that, that era when McLaren Honda teamed up and Hondas well, were well, winning be, be, a lot? Being quite bored, to be honest. I mean, you know, 16 races, <laughs> it's 15 the wins. Way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was like Porsche in the Group C in, in, you know, in the 1980s. And, you know, as you were saying, Schumacher at Ferrari in the early part of this century. And, you know, it is, you know, we look back on it and we think, wow, that was incredible. And as a technical accomplishment to look at it, it was incredible. But to actually watch at the time, you know, 19, in 1988, with the sole exception of the Italian Grand Prix, the only question was ever, you know, whether it was going to be, 
at an all, all pros that won the race and that's not you know and and to an extent that's almost what we've got today um and you know so i mean and and honda was so important to that process i mean clearly the mp44 was a great car um but you know if you remember in 86 and 87 when the honda turbo engine was in the back of the williams um and they won the constructors both those seasons and then um mclaren nicked the engine and in an instant mclaren were winning everything uh, and williams just fell off a cliff um and so that gives you some idea um of what that v6 turbo engine was like and then what the v10 that followed it uh, was like which just continued i mean I, I said this in the post every single constructors championship and all bar one drivers championship in the six seasons between 86 and 91 were won by honda powered people or cars uh, and that is you know that that tells you all you need to know doesn't it uh it's it was pretty extraordinary um and you know i just wish that a few others had been you know around to give them a you know a, a decent run for their money but you know the honda would just playing a different game and it didn't matter i think a lot of people hoped that when the rules went from you know turbo to normally aspirated and so there really was a you know a complete reset and a clean sheet of paper that you know someone like you know ferrari perhaps might come along and um and give them something to think about uh, and in time they, they they did but you know certainly while they were there honda was still absolutely the um the team to beat and that's why, isn't it, this latest episode as a, an engine supplier will sadly be deemed a failure because that's, that enormous success is still um, well within living memory. And, yeah. um, and, 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 and as a PR message, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, the sort of natural, the understanding, I mean, the sort of firm but fair takeaway is, you know, you, you're just not as good as you used to be. Um, and, you know, it, and, and you can't look at... Uh, Honda's performance as an engine supplier or indeed as a constructor, you know, comparing the late 20th century to the early 21st century and conclude anything other than, you know, they were better at it then than they are now. Um, but, you know, as you say, you know, there are other factors. Yeah, Mercedes and so on. But, yeah, sad, to, really sad to see them go, though. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel the same way. Um, we, we mustn't just talk about Honda and F1 because there's so much more ground to cover. Um, so, do you know can what? I, can, I, I, can I just do one more Honda F1 thing? Um, only because it, I, I, I think it might even make the link you're trying to make. But um, I, there was another time, um, and I'm trying to remember it, when it was. It must have been after. It must have been in the mid '90s after Honda had uh, left Formula One, uh, and I was over there driving something i wish i could remember what it was but i can't it was a road car some description um and you know we'd be, we'd been out doing whatever we did in the day and it was the late afternoon and they'd said on the schedule that there was a sort of you know a surprise waiting for us um and we didn't know what <laughs> the surprise were but we were at the we were at the test track and then suddenly the surprise started making an awful lot of noise and appeared out what? of a shed <laughs> and it was a fully configured bang up to date brand new modern formula one car they weren't even in formula one and this was a project that they just an out of hours project which they managed to score a bit of money from um just as a passion project they they, they loved it so much that even though they weren't in formula one even though there was no prospect of them returning to <laughs> they formula built one, car, one. <laughs> they just did one anyway because they could and they wanted to and they, and you know and i guess they were thinking well you know they're not saying we're going back now but you know 
if they suddenly were to change their minds, then at least we'd be, you know, halfway down the road to, you know. And so they, I don't know how long they did it for, but they kept, you know, which they never showed and they never raced and they never did anything with, but they kept a modern, bang up to date Formula One car, you know, up and running just because they could. And, and, and to me, that just shows you, you know, so much about, you know, the passion of these people for racing and for Honda and for engineering excellence um and you know as i'm sure we're about to discuss it ain't just in the racing cars exactly right there we go and it, <clears throat> that that enthusiasm that passion for engineering and for racing um it all comes from the founder soichiro honda founded he founded the company in 1948 um but before we get stuck into that i I just want to i have to sort of fess up to sometimes allowing myself um to slip into this way of thinking. It's so easy just to hear the name Honda and go, oh yeah, they a mainstream car manufacturer. Yeah, they make the, the Civic and the Jazz, don't they? But in fact, there's so much texture and richness about this company. Um, and its its heritage is incredible. And as I've said, that, that enthusiasm for quirky engineering and for racing all seems to come from the founder, Honda. And there's this lovely story, which has been oft-repeated and who knows how accurate this retelling of it will be. Um, But it's apparently from a biography in a a Japanese newspaper. So let's hope it's accurate. But anyway, Mr. Honda, he saw his first car when he was eight years old in 1913, um, when a Ford Model T rumbled through the remote village he lived in in central Japan. Um, And he said, it was the first car I saw. What a thrill. Oil dropped when it came to a halt. How nice the smell was. I put my nose down to the ground like a dog and sniffed it. I smeared my hands with the oil and deeply inhaled the smell. It was then I dreamed of manufacturing a car myself someday. That's, a, that's almost literally a petrol head, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's an oil head. Is it? He, he was an oil head, yeah. yeah. He was far more an engineer than a businessman, which, to be fair, is true of a lot of these company founders, isn't it? But yeah. You know, he was one of a kind, a real, a real character. Um, and you can see his influence in all sorts of quirky engineering, um, me- the, the quirky engineering methodology that Honda has resorted to throughout its, its time. For instance, the Honda NR500 Grand Prix bike with oval pistons, um, because it meant that they could have eight valves per cylinder and get more power. Uh, <laughs> it's just fantastic, isn't it? An oval piston. When I was um, out there um, driving the Hondola, um, as I said, it was you know they they'd got all their stuff out because they were prepping it for for Goodwood. And one of the things they were bringing over to Goodwood was one of their motorcycles. I know nothing about motorcycles, so someone's going to tell me that I've got this all wrong. But I, but I, 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 but but basically, it was. A one two five with six cylinders, which and this was like an early nineteen sixties bike, and I know that it revved to over twenty thousand. You know, so this was a yeah, car which is you know sorry, a bike from the early sixties revving to over twenty thousand RPM. Can you imagine what those how big those pistons were? You know, twenty something cc's per piston, um, and you know they they just did it because they could, and they would have just been really interested to see what happens if we make you know a one two five with six cylinders. Um, yeah there's a there's a curiosity isn't there there's a curiosity about engineering there and that's why they do cars and bikes but also atvs and robots remember asimo and business jets and lawn mowers boat motors yeah just 
so much, such diversity. Um, I, mean, I, mean, I, I have because um, I, I, where I live, I need one. I have, I have a little ride on, which of course is a Honda, and I have a Strimmer, which is of course a Honda. And I, I, it's interesting. I wonder how many people who go and buy themselves a Honda Strimmer do so because somewhere in the back of their head they think this ain't going to go wrong, is it? Um, it's a Honda. It's going to be. You know, it's going to be well engineered. It's going to be you know the real deal, rather than you know something from some brand which might be cheaper but they haven't heard of. Um, and surprise, surprise, neither my ride or nor my strum has ever let me down. Uh, and I don't think that's a coincidence. No, I don't think it is. That, that's fascinating. Um, okay, well, of course, what we should really be talking about is cars and road yeah. cars, not strimmers. Um, not strimmers. No, I mean maybe we'll do another episode I do on brush garden for you. equipment. <laughs> we'll save that one for when we're really struggling um so let's i think if we're going to talk about honda road cars we obviously have to talk about the nsx um and as we all know Which it was one? developed by well the original it was developed by Ayrton senna wasn't it oh dear <laughs> <laughs> you've been you, you've made it your a personal mission haven't you to get to the bottom of this claim yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I haven't actually ever seen any Honda literature which says Ayrton Senna developed the NSX. Um, but I think they did say that he drove it and he was, and I suspect they might have been a little bit oblique about it and said that he was involved, which he was, for at least a day um, <laughs> or half a day. Um, it must have been know. a busy day. I mean, he, you know, I mean, and, and there's footage of it. They did take a... Uh, a car to, I think it was to Suzuka and they stuck him in it and he drove it around the track and he told them what they thought of it uh, and so to that extent Senna was involved in the development of the car but anybody who thinks that you know Ayrton was out there pounding around the test track doing durability testing or out there in the Arctic Circle <laughs> or wherever um, doing the final damper sign off you know sorry he had other things to be do- to, 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 to be doing so you know it, it's not like I'm not saying for a moment that he already never drove it he had nothing whatever to do with it but his role in the gestation of that car um, has been massively um, overstated over time and in many ways because it was such an amazing thing it, it, it annoys me slightly because you know we all know how great Ayrton was and to me it kind of takes away from the people who really did that car and perhaps creates the suggestion that it somehow wouldn't have been quite as good if he hadn't driven it. Well, cobblers. It would have been absolutely as good if he hadn't driven it. Um, and I think that the people who did do it deserve the full credit credit for that amazing achievement, which it was. The footage, though, of him driving the car at Suzuka. Oh, in his tasseled loafers, yes. Yeah. Anybody who hasn't seen it, get on there and have a look. It's great. If you want to see... He, yeah, he's the on it. Yeah. He's on it. It's great. It's a wonderful <laughs> thing to see. But you know, I you know, if he improved the car by half a percent by doing that, I'd, I'd be surprised. So you know, I just don't want the credit taken away from the people who deserve it. While we're talking about Ayrton Senna and the NSX, um, you have to tell us your story now. People who oh, this is a good opportunity here. People who um, support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Drive Nation. Um, they might well have read this story already because it was the first piece that the first full-length article that we published on Patreon. Um, we, we also published an excerpt, didn't we, on on Instagram? But an, an amazing thing, particularly looking back now, Andrew, you you got to meet Senna and ride with him around Silverstone in an NSX. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I hope this story doesn't, you know, is, isn't too, isn't so old and, you know, and sort of, uh, I mean, I've, I've told it a few times, so I'm not going to sort of go into every detail. But uh, for, for those who, who, who don't know, and if you do, I'll be brief. Um, this was 1991 uh, because Honda had just got the V12 engine in the race car and there was a tyre test at Silverstone. Um, which was a waste of time because it just chucked it down uh, and everybody was cheesed off. Um, but Autocar had, um, through its editor, Michael Harvey, arranged to basically spend a day with Ayrton. Uh, and I wasn't involved in most of it. Um, I think Michael picked him up from where he was. He was staying at the Manoir au Quatre Saisons, as one does, um, and went with him to the circuit and sort of spoke to him and interviewed him and that sort of thing. But my job was to go and... Um, get a passenger lap of the track which had we'd obviously must have sorted out in the lunch hour or the tea break or whatever um, and anyway so I present myself to the McLaren motorhome um, and wait and wait and wait um, and eventually um, he comes down the steps looking properly cheesed off and I'm in sort of the awning outside the motorhome um, and he sort of barely looks at me and goes to, to his assistant is this him yeah fine All right, where's the car um and you know we go the, the moment you go outside you know there were all the journalists in Northamptonshire were there um and pointing cameras at him and trying to shove dictaphones up his nose and everything else and you know I could just tell the bloke was in a really really bad mood um and then we got in the car and um he set off down the pit lane and I suddenly realized that I'd left my dictaphone behind and I had to record this experience um and I just said to him, look, I'm really, really sorry. I've just got to go back and get this. Um, and because, I guess because it was raining or because he was just in even more of a hurry, um, he, uh, instead of just stopping the car and letting me get out and run back, he reversed the car back up the pit lane. Um, and I got my dictaphone, got me out of the car, and we're going out into the circuit. And then suddenly we see someone standing in front of us. Uh, because, as it turns out, Silverstone had a particularly... Um, strict clerk of the course who was a bit of a legend in racing circuits called Silverstone Sid who'd seen this NSX going backwards up his pit lane um, and and had not taken kindly to it so I mean I can't believe this happened but it really did happen so Ayrton Senna and I got pulled up <laughs> you know, in front of the headmaster and I can remember him standing there going I don't care if you're the Formula 1 ch- world championship I don't care who you are you don't reverse back up my pit lane and Senna was just sitting there, you know. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, just and it was all my fault. You know, I hadn't picked up the bloody dictaphone. Um, and so we go back out into the car, and you know, if his mood had been bad before, you can imagine what it must have been like now. And we eventually get out on the circuit, and then suddenly, total transformation. Um, I was sitting next, and he said, "Oh, we haven't." He just suddenly said, "Oh, we haven't been properly introduced." Hi, I'm Ayrton. Um, and he leant across and shook my hand. Well, hello, I'm Andrew. And, and then, then he just started. Check. They made some changes to Silverstone, um, which he wasn't that knocked about out about. And he apologised that he wasn't quite as up to speed with the track as um, he'd like to have been. Uh, he made some very interesting comments about the V12 engine, which he just got, which in his estimation wasn't anything like as good as the V10 engine, which he'd had um, for the previous couple of seasons. Um, and on and on. I'm just sitting here thinking, wow. I mean hey, this is a really, really nice guy. Who knew? Um, and the only problem was that he wasn't driving very fast because we were just sort of chatting away about, you know, Hondas and Silverstone. And then, you know, we did that for a couple of laps and then suddenly the chat stopped and he started to drive this car. Um, certainly in a way 
I'd never been driven and, and have never been driven since. Um, it was pouring with rain and uh, we just we just went around the track. It, it was a surreal experience because it wasn't like he was, you know, flailing arms, this, that and the other. It was so calm and peaceful and serene in there. And yet the speed at which the car was going and the angle at which it was travelling just seemed to completely contradict um, what I was feeling from the car. It, it wasn't scary at all. And yet we were going so fast and the car at times was so sideways. And yet he wasn't really doing much with the steering. He was controlling it all on the throttle. And I just I could just remember thinking, here is a bloke on top of his game in a way I could never have imagined anyone being on top of their game. Um, and yes, it was it was you know, obviously one of the most extraordinary experiences of my of my working life. Um, and you know, I, I, at the time, you know, I clearly didn't appreciate um, just what a privilege it was. And I think sometimes, particularly if you're young, which I was back then, um, it's only when you realise you know a person's contribution to history, and you know, and if they're not around anymore, just you know how lucky you were to have been able to do that at all. Um, so yeah, anyway, so that's the story. Um, I got you know a few laps, not many, probably three, four, possibly. Um, but it was with Ayrton, and it was he, I was driven by him. I think probably as fast as even he could drive a uh, Honda NSX in the wet. Um, and yeah, I'll remember it for the rest of my days. <clears throat> that is a great story, Andrew. And <clears throat> yeah, as you've suggested, it, I'm sure it'll only become more uh, more poignant to you as time goes on. I mean, an extraordinary thing to have done. Um, okay, and you, so you mentioned that NSX. So what? Do, what are your what original NSX? Do you remember when it first arrived, and do you remember what your thoughts of it were, or what the, the sort of motoring motoring press made of it compared to the competition? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, because I was there. I mean, I, I wrote the road test it for Autocar, and it would have been nineteen ninety, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, we can all. I can remember we all just went, just sat around, going, "Oh my god." I mean, you have to remember the context. This was when we thought um, that Japan had finally arrived and it was going to take over the world. You know, if you think of the cars that got launched around that time, from the biggest, like the you know the LS four hundred Lexus, you know, at, when it was you new know, best luxury car in the world, to even the, the you know the, the little Nissan Micra, which was a cracking little car from back then, and then yeah, and then you had cars like you know Nissan had the three hundred ZX, which was like the first decent Z car in years. Uh, and then Honda come along with the NSX. And here is a car which is just out Ferrari's Ferrari. And we couldn't believe it. Um, it was nicer to drive. I mean, Ferrari for, for, for Ferrari was at a low ebb at the time. If you remember, it had the 348, which, you know, will never go down in anybody's book of, you know, the world's great Ferraris. It'll be in most people's books of, you know, the world's worst Ferraris. Um so, you know, I guess the NSX was slightly lucky, but, um, you know, you take your opposition as you find it. And here came, here came a car with this extraordinary engine, um, amazing, you know, engineering, you know, variable valve timing, you know, the most beautiful. I remember looking underneath it and just seeing these beautiful aluminium wishbones. Um, you know, they built a purpose-built factory just so that it could build, you know, the NSX. You know, this engine, which, you know, 30 years ago would rev to... You know, over 8,000 revs, this amazing gearbox. And yet, and yet, and yet, you could just get in it and drive it like a Civic. It was so easy to live with. It almost out 911 the 911. If it had had any kind of rear seats, it would have out, out 911 the 911 just for its sheer usability too. Um, this wasn't a sort of high days and holidays car at all. This was, 
a car that you could easily see yourself just, you know, leaving in the street and getting in and commuting and doing whatever you want to do with it. And then just when the time on the road and your brain was in the right place, just having just you know, more fun than almost anything else you could imagine buying. It was it was an absolute landmark. And also, you know, it was an incredibly significant car uh, because although ultimately it wasn't commercially that successful, if you look at uh, and not that anybody at Ferrari would ever admit to this uh, on the record, but if you look at the Ferraris that came immediately after it, you know that it was just the most enormous wake-up call to the established European supercar manufacturers. You know, Ferrari replaced the 348 with, you know, one of its worst cars with the 355, one of its best cars. And in between those two events came the NSX. Coincidence? I think not. Mm. Um, so Interesting. Yeah, yeah. amazing thing. <clears throat> and, and when you see one today, they look... They look remarkable. They've got the the sort of proportions of a fighter jet with that. The cockpit, it is a canopy right yeah. at the front of the car. And then yeah. you've got that long, long deck behind and the full width, very sort of hangover from the 80s, that full width light strip at the rear. Um, I think it it just looks fantastic even now. So I've only driven one NSX, um, but it was an original NSX-R. Um, Ooh. One of, yeah, owned by our friend RS Driver. Yes. Uh, on Twitter. Um, and one of very, very few cars in the UK. I think maybe single digit, actually. So it's a proper unicorn here in, here in the UK. Um, and I drove it for an autocar piece because it, wa- it was 25 years old, I think. And I got it together with the current Civic Type R to... Um, because the NSXR was the first Type R, wasn't it? So we had the first Type R and the most recent Type R together. Yeah, um, although they never called it a Type R. It was always just the R, no, wasn't it? Just the R, yeah. yeah. Um, exactly, and I, it was such a fantastic thing to drive. Um, Which would have yeah, been quicker? I, well, do you know what? I was thinking that. I, I, was, I, I really wished that we could get a circuit and stick them both round with a, you know, a really quick racing driver in them, because... It would have been fascinating to find out, wouldn't it? I actually, I think the um, the NSX would have given the Civic Type R a proper run for its money, but I do think the Type R would have had it because it's got so much more power, so much more grip. Um, but of course, it's a totally different question when you start thinking about who'd be having more fun. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I just adored it. I didn't drive it far, but... I just adored it. The the steering in particular, unassisted steering, and you you just had this uncanny sense of what the front tires were doing. You could feel them smearing across the road surface with such clarity. It was it was incredible. Um, and I remember thinking, in so many ways, that NSXR was a bit like a proto McLaren of the McLaren automotive era, the current era, um, because you know, apart from being two seat mid engine supercars. Um, the, the McLaren had, the, sorry, the NSX had that incredible steering that's only really mirrored, um, if it is at all, to some degree by a, a modern McLaren in the supercar world. Um, also, the low scuttle um, and amazing visibility. So, in the Honda, you could, I felt like I was watching each stone in the road surface pass beneath the front tyres. Um, and it was, and you kind of get that impression in, in most McLarens, don't you? And it was, that that one thing, being able to see the road right in front of you, made positioning the car and having confidence in the car, um, well, second nature. The the um, uh, the interesting point uh, you talk about modern McLarens, but let's not forget how much the NSX informed the uh, the McLaren yeah. F1 too. You know, Gordon Murray, he got all the rivals together. 
you know, Bugattis and XJ220s and Lamborghinis and for I need and apart from the F4, he thought they were all terrible. Um, but his daily driver was an NSX, which he absolutely loved. And and that sort of thing that you're talking about, the feel of the car, the visibility, um, you know, values that exist in McLaren to this day, you know, they were born in the F1 in the early 1990s. And, you know, and they are that way, at least in part, because Gordon was so um, knocked out by the, you know, the engineering of the NSX, particularly the, you know, the attention to detail and light weighting and pure engineering. And, and in fact, you know, let's also not forget that the first company that McLaren went to for an engine for the F1 was Honda. Um, and, you know, it didn't, uh, it didn't work out and it ended up with, um, with the BMW engine, obviously. But, um, uh, yeah, so you know an, another way in which the the, the NSX you know, influenced um, the future of the supercar and, and continues to do so today. Yeah, and Murray still talks about those old NSX principles, doesn't he? He wants yes. his even his new T50 to be usable um, on the road. He wants it to have great visibility. Um, he, he likes lightweight engineering. He doesn't want. It, he's not chasing power or lap times. It's it's all the same basic philosophy, isn't it? It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Really interesting. Okay, so we, we did mention Type R briefly. Um, and we can't talk about Honda without getting stuck into Type R um, because there have been some, well, some slightly forgettable ones over the years, but also some brilliant ones. Um, and I think one of the ones, we have spoken about it already on this podcast, but the Integra Type R, the DC2, uh, it's a proper hero car. I think, well... Well, I was about to say, I hope you're not going to ask me somewhere, somewhere down the line which my favourite Type R is because I'm just well, I'm just out of blur because I mean, I, th- I think it is. Um, well, how, well, how, how old is that car? Late 1998, 99, something like that? I think seven. I think 97. 97, okay. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, don't forget the Civics of that time were pretty bloody amazing too. Um, but, but you know, the Integra was just wonderful, wasn't it? I mean, I can remember at the, certainly at the time. I'm not sure I've ever driven a front-wheel drive car that I enjoyed more than that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just looking now, actually, and it looks like we were both wrong. The, there was a Japanese domestic market DC2 Integra Type R as early as '95, um, but then it didn't find its way to the rest of the world until a bit later in that decade. But yeah, I mean, and we can get stuck into the quirky engineering in that car um, as well, can't we? The proper Honda hallmark. Um, did it have double wishbones all round? Yeah, it did. Yeah, um, you know, and 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 they kept those going through. You know, even the Civics had double wishbones. You know, everybody else is having, you know, torsion beam rear ends and you know, McPherson <laughs> struts. Yeah, you know, and and that you know that, that that just that little detail. You know, so there's everyone doing you know the cheap and easy thing because you know a, a, a McPherson strut and a torsion beam. You know, people will make out that it's you know always the best thing for a hatchback. In fact, it's the best thing for a hatchback because they're easy to package and cheap to manufacture. And Honda's looking at it and thinking, no, we're not going to do that. No, what, what do racing cars have? What what? You know, well, they've got double wishbones in each corner, don't they? So we'll do that um, on their little hatchback and on the little coupe. Um, and you know, so you know, it, it kind of just shows that you know, with Honda, I think people respect Honda so much as an engine manufacturer, they kind of forget that you know that approach you know permeates the entire car. Um, and you know certainly they they would create suspension systems with every bit as much love and care and attention to detail as they would their engines. Um, so yeah, what else did it have on it? Did it had it had a the, slipper the on it, didn't it? Yeah, slipper um, the VTEC. Yeah, um, 
and a titanium gear lever. Do I, do I remember that correctly? Or maybe I you do. That. No, you do. You do remember that correctly. That's a bit of a Type R hallmark. Um, that teardrop-shaped titanium gear lever. The NSXR had one as well. Um, and actually, so Honda has just updated the current Civic Type R, the, the 2021 model year. Um, so it's like it, the new car's just arrived with a teardrop-shaped metal gear knob. Sadly, it's not titanium. I think it's just aluminium. But, you know, it's a, it's a really nice nod back to those... That those proper hero cars um so do you know one of the frustrations of the modern day automotive environment the the cars that we have today is that there's this sort of homogenous approach nowadays you know all hot hatches are two liter turbo 300 horsepower ish perhaps with some sort of diff you know, that there's very little variability like there used to be be before um, and, and that sadly is true of the Honda as well. It's a two-liter, four-cylinder, six-speed manual, front-wheel drive. Um, yeah, just like all the others seem to be. However, it is a superb car. Um, I've I've got a real soft spot for the current Honda Civic. Yeah, type I mean, and, and let, let us not forget it is slightly different. Well, I mean, it, well, it's certainly different to the previous one. Do you remember that you know, when the I'm trying to think how long ago this was when the when the Civic Type R went completely off the boil because they did the car. Um, it would have been about uh, 2007, um, I think, when they produced the car, which did have the strut front and the beam at the back. Um, and they said, oh, no, we found out a way of getting it to work just as well as double, double wishbone. Did they hell? Um, and that was the car that kind of went off the boil, wasn't it? And it was only when the current generation came along and they put proper suspension back on it again that it started being you know, the go-to hot hatch for everybody who really liked to drive. So it has got the multi-liter rear end, hasn't it? Yeah, it and does. also, it's also it is a two-liter turbo, but it's still got the VTEC. So it's a, as far as those engines go, it's pretty revvy and it's pretty characterful actually. Um, a big, strong. Well, it's a, it is a two-liter, but it's a strong two-liter engine. Um, and yeah, I just love the chassis on that car, the steering. I actually did a just yesterday. I shot a twin test video on that car and a Ford Focus ST, which I know you're running at the moment as your daily. Um, can you, can, you, can not, you tell us? Can you tell us what wins? No, I can't. I, I, no, I might get sacked if I give that away here. Um, but it was a, a really interesting comparison. Will you tell um, me after we go off the air? I can do. Excellent. As long as you don't don't tweet it. Watch my Twitter about five minutes. <laughs> No, I won't. Yeah, okay. But the point about that car, isn't it, is that it just feels um, why I think the reason I think it is actually still the go to car, just from a pure driving point of view, um, although I would say the focus is also right up there. But I mean, both those cars, I mean, they just feel honed, don't they? They just feel that, you know, they haven't done just gone and got the ingredients and stuck them into a car. They've done that and they've chipped away at it. They've gone and they've just developed it and developed it and developed it and just. You know, when they've got to the bit where they think, well, that's probably good enough, they've just ignored it and kept going. Um, and, you know, certainly in... Okay, I haven't driven the 2021 car, but certainly, you know, and I don't think it's it's a particularly heavy facelift, is it? I think I'm sure the same is true for um, the more recent cars. Um, they just feel like, you know, really, really resolved cars. And, you know, and what they're trying to do is not easy. If you think about the amount of torque they're trying to put through the front wheels of a car, um, you know, and they haven't resorted to four-wheel drive, which I think brings as many problems as it solves. Um, and so they've kept it pure and they've kept it good. Um, and yeah, it just shows that there are still petrol heads at Honda. 
Yeah, it really does. Um, I think the thing about that that car, the current Type Honda Civic Type R, for me is that, and I've said it before, but I just remember jumping in it for the first time, the pre-facelift one in two thousand and eight, and driving it quickly and well. By which I mean sort of smoothly and accurately and with sympathy. Um, immediately from the first mile onwards, just feeling like, oh, I'm, I really get this. You know, I I, I understand this car immediately. Um, and that for me is such an unusual thing and a, a hallmark of a, a really well resolved car of any type. Um, okay. Well, there we go. That's, that's, is there anything else that you want to tell us about Honda? Because hopefully I think we've covered a well, good I deal think, of the okay, ground okay, that we wanted um, to. Okay. Can we, can we just do the modern NSX? Um, we should probably have done that. Yeah. If we'd actually planned these podcasts, we'd probably done that after we'd done the old NSX rather than sort of bung a load of hatchbacks in the middle. But, um, I don't know. I, I don't know about you, Dan, but um, I drove one quite recently. Actually, um, that car has also had a very um, modest midlife facelift. Um, and you know, I can remember, as I'm sure you can, all the hoo ha um, that preceded the car's launch. And it t- it seemed to be taking forever. But you know, don't worry, guys, because this is going to be the most technologically advanced, sophisticated, you know, yada yada yada, uh, whatever. And it looks great. And the car came out and we thought, bloody hell, if this drives anything like as well as it looks. And then I can remember when I first drove one, which was at the annual auto car, Britain's best driver's car day thing that we did. Uh, I can't remember where we, where we were for that one, but it doesn't matter. Um, and I can remember getting in this car uh, with its three electric motors and four wheel drive and everything else and thinking, yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, it's it's certainly fast and it's certainly, you know, trustworthy and it's, you know, it's it laps reasonably quickly. But I'm not getting any wow factor here. Um, and it's and, and, and it was it was and the, and the problem was it was like all these cars are. And, you know, Ferrari has the same issue with the SF90 today. Um, it's just heavy. It's a heavy car. Um, and, and and I look at it and I think if this is the future of the supercar, I think it's going in the wrong direction. Um, because the one thing that you want those cars to be, which is thrilling to drive, and in many ways it's almost like the sort of the anti NSX. Because if you look at the guiding principle, however much Honda went you know went on about how it was so much informed by the you know by the original, it just bloody wasn't. Because you know the original car was above all, it was a lightweight car. That was their guiding principle. Um, and you know Honda for the current car, they just chuck that idea out the out, out, out the door. I, it was almost as if they went thought to themselves, "Well, we don't have a choice. This thing, this car's going to weigh I don't know what it weighs, what was seventeen, eighteen hundred kilos, because we need to do this stuff because this has to be the most technologically sophisticated um, supercar that, there, that there's ever been." Well, why? What is it actually doing for you? And I'm sure if you do the emissions and you look at it from a I don't know from a a CO2 or taxation point of view, then, you know, there, there, there may well be um, advantages there. But, you know, even compared to something like an i8 BMW, you know, it doesn't have a carbon tub. It can't run on electricity alone. Um, you can't plug it in. Um, so, you know, even as, in terms of technological sophistication, I would query it for that. And what have you got as a result? You've got a really great looking but ultimately, not that rewarding car. And I, I think it's a misstep um, for Honda. So yeah, there you go. I, feel, I've said I, it I feel the same. <laughs> they got, got that off your chest. I remember driving it for the first time in Scotland a few years ago when the car was new, and driving back to the hotel one evening in convoy, at the lead of a convoy of some other very fast cars, just 
dusting everyone, disappearing off into the distance, driving as quickly on the road as I've ever done, sometimes reaching 60 miles an hour, Andrew. Ooh, um, you and, rebel. <laughs> and getting to the end of the road and thinking, that was unbelievably fast and I feel so unmoved. And I, I, what, I, what I said back then and I still feel now is that it's that criticism that people who had never driven a Nissan GTR had of that car, which was that it just did everything for you. And that was actually never true of that car. I think it actually was true of the NSX. It, it just made going that quickly a bit too easy. And that's not the point of trying to go quickly, is it? I mean, I think if you asked anybody who actually cared about driving, would you go, you know, would you rather go really, really fast or would you prefer instead to go a little bit slower but be really moved by the car and have a really you know rewarding memory i mean no one's going to say oh yeah no i'll have the extra you know however many horsepower it is you know it's just not the way people think um and you know um i mean i don't think the car's been a huge sales success any more actually than the original nsx was a huge sales success but that probably says more about bad snobbery than anything else which is a shame but yeah, um, I, I, I just don't think it's the way forward. Um, I'm not saying I do know what the way forward is, and I'm always very critical of people who criticise stuff without having a better idea themselves, and I don't have a better idea myself other than just make it lighter, get rid of the electrically driven front axles, um, you know, just, you know, achieve your genuine um, improvements in environmental of, you know, efficiency and everything else by making a car light um, rather than making it heavy and, you know, making it look amazing on paper but slightly disappointing on the road. Um, back to those old Honda principles, quirky, back to clever those old, engineering. Yes. There we go. Well, I, I, think, I think we should leave it on that note because that was a slightly sunnier note, wasn't it? Just celebrating the quirky engineering and the the you know the alternative approach that they have often in the past taken at honda um, because i i do i do want this episode to be celebrating that brand because that company because it, it, yeah. it really is special I, well I, and let's not forget they still make um certainly arguably the best driving hatchback that you can go and buy at the moment so it's not like they've forgotten how to do it um it's just that sometimes they don't quite you know, live up to their extremely, you know, the extremely high standards we have seen from them in the past. And that's the same whether it's, you know, as a Formula One engine supplier at the moment um, or, you know, a supercar manufacturer. Um, so, you know, this is, this, it's not like we've got any kind of downer on the company at all. You know, um, we just know how good it can be. And that's always problematic, isn't it? Because then you kind of always hope that it's going to be that good again. Uh, and when it isn't, it's a bit disappointing. Whereas if they'd never been that good, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So, in many ways, it's kind of a compliment in a rather inverted kind of way. There we go. Well, we've done 56 minutes on Honda, and it was a it was a breeze. There's so much more that we could talk about, which is hopefully reflects on on Honda as a company itself and how um, yeah how special it really is. There we go. We'll leave that there. I've already mentioned Patreon in this episode, so you'll be pleased to hear I don't have to do that again. Um, so instead, I will ask you all, please, everybody, to rate and review the podcast. It's really important, and we're really grateful. Um, and check us out on Instagram. You probably know about us already on Instagram, but if you're new to us, um, we're at we're at Insta, uh, we're at drive nation underscore uh, go and have a look um, and we will be back to talk to you again about something this time next week look forward to it thanks the drive nation podcast with dan prosser and andrew frankel mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.